At Scribble, we're proud to keep the free audiobook by podcast tradition going strong. But, of course, the free model only works as long as you sometimes swing by Scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. And support our authors by also purchasing their titles in ebook or higher quality ad-free audiobook form. Scribble pays authors at the same rate or better than other outlets, so there's no better place to show your support for your favorite author than by buying your next book from Scribble. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. Chapter 15 There's high, and there's high. And to get really high, I mean so high that you can walk on the water. That high, that's where I'm going. George Harrison, 1968 They found another body, Francine said to Mark over a cup of coffee. He'd been taken by ambulance back to the library, where she covered him with blankets. An officer had dropped off some new dry clothes in his size from the outdoor store. That's when she found out about the new murder they'd discovered. It was a young Oneida man. The boy's grandfather was on his way into town to identify the body for sure, but Francine knew who it was already just from the officer's description. She held back tears because of the immediacy of his removal from her presence, the closeness to him she had been right before his murder. Besides his killer, she figured she was the last one to talk to him. She lit candles. The power had gone out hours ago, and she was saving the battery-operated lights for nighttime. It reminded her of Mark's conversation about the United kid in high school he told her about. Jerry was sure that Gary Connors was the killer. But if he was, then why would he kill one of his own tribe? Mark told her all about Jerry's theories. She sat back, thinking silently for a while, and then a memory thrust itself upon her. She sat up and paced the room. He researched historical information for the tribe, in one brief conversation, he mentioned his grandfather's seat on the council of the tribe. He never checked out a book, just referenced old town records and newspaper articles. Oh my God, she said. Come with me to the basement. 
Candlelight flickered against the wet cement walls as they descended the old wooden stairs. Usually, the basement was dry, but the moisture began seeping through the walls a few days ago. She had thought of moving everything upstairs, but then there was the leaky roof to consider. Instead of a rock and a hard place, she thought of it as being caught between a drip and a damp place. It was the kind of thought that always amused her, but never dared to say out loud. She had never been in the basement without lights, and it began to feel rather creepy. What little illumination there was besides the candle came from a few permanently dirt-dusted windows butting up to the ceiling. At one time, she had considered boarding up the basement, but when her collection became too big for the shelves, she moved some of the archive material down there. Manuscripts, diaries, journals to the back, old newspapers in the front, and town ledgers, documents, and other miscellaneous and unique papers dating back to the beginning of Canyon Park's charter were stacked in flat files in chronological order down the middle. Junk, like old computer equipment, was relegated to the sides in plastic bins. He was always interested in the old edicts and court decrees, she said. Mark stumbled behind her. Who's that? The boy that was killed today. He'd come in here looking for the old town documents and newspapers. She found a drawer he'd been interested in lately and flipped through some of the yellow newspapers. One, a Canyon Park Press from the 70s, was folded back to a page halfway through where a small article describing the death of Mark's parents was printed. She scanned the paragraphs. Look at this, she said. She shoved the paper up at him and held up her candle to supplement his own. Why would he care about this, he asked. His tone was laced with anger and frustration. In that article, it says that more information is reported in the city paper. This article came out two months after your parents died. Why the late interest? She shuffled through some more drawers and found a copy of the Greenstown Herald. In the local section, she spotted the article referenced in the town paper. Local Couple Dies Under Suspicious Circumstances by Ned Tompkins Theodore Lalo, son of local businessman Bradley Lalo, died with his wife Helen in an automobile accident that some in Greenstown police are calling suspicious. Reports show that the 1968 Ford Mustang they were driving was going at high speeds when Theodore made a dangerous turn in bad weather and his car jumped off the road and into a nearby ditch. Residents, who wished to have their names withheld, told this reporter that Ted Lalo never sped in his notoriously fast sports car, and he and his wife were very careful drivers who knew that area well, since it was the only road that led from their home to Canyon Park's main street. Other sources said that the Mr. and Mrs. were on the verge of exposing a very scandalous secret to the Lalo family. Several notes and letters were dropped off at the local newspaper regarding this matter, but were ignored. Although unnamed sources at the newspaper would not share the content of the accusations, they would go as far as to say that it involved local Oneida and their gripes against Bradley Lalo in particular. Bradley Lalo had successfully run his family business and expanded its holdings from tool and dye factories to include a chain of convenience stores, an auto parts chain, and many other various investments locally. 
He had been accused of unscrupulous dealings with the local population in the past, and a court case from the 1950s was uncharacteristically sealed from the public record. Thomas Williams, whose Indian name is Yellowbird Red Fox, is a local Oneida spokesman. Mr. Williams expressed dismay at the deaths of the young Lalo couple, calling them good friends to the indigenous people of the state. The Lalos broke with their family on many issues concerning Native American rights and the reconditioning schools that the Lalo family set up in the 1800s and still run today, Mr. Williams added. They will be missed by many. The schools were set up by missionaries at the request of the Lalo family when they first settled the area to convert the locals to become not only factory workers but also Christians. Over the years, a dark side of abuse has tainted the schools, but they persist in offering the local population the only path out of the cycle of alcohol abuse and suicide that plagues the United Tribe. Many support the schools and ignore these accusations for this reason. Mr. and Mrs. Lalo quietly tried to reform the school and take it away from its Christian basis and offer even those Oneida who did not want to convert a better life, but they were opposed at every turn by Bradley Lalo, according to various reports. In public, Bradley Lalo has more than once referred to his son and daughter as, quote, ignorant hippies. Theodore and Helen were known to also be directly involved with the counterculture movement called Flowers for Indigenous Peoples, a group run by self-proclaimed hippies and revolutionaries. Though the acts of this group have been tame at best and not very effective in this part of the state, they have successfully lobbied for local law changes regarding the treatment of Native Americans. It was also well known that the relationship between Bradley Lalo and his son had deteriorated over the past few years, although the younger Lalo had still been employed by the family business at the time of his death. Many local residents have developed theories about how the Lalos died unnaturally, but the police have yet to open an investigation, calling it a simple and clear case of misjudging a dangerous turn. When told that this part of the road was well-traveled by Ted Lalo, the detective said that he must have been angry or something that day. Many disagree with this assessment of the deaths. Theodore and Helen Lalo were buried last month in a private cemetery. They are survived by their young son, Mark, who police said will go to live with an as-yet-undisclosed family member. Mark's eyes glistened with tears, reflecting like heat waves off a summer road in the light of the candle. She saw the anger and the gnashing jaw. I'm sorry, Mark. I never thought there was any suspicion. If I had known, I could have... Then silence held them together for a moment. Francine moved to leave the basement, and she led him by the hand up to the library. Upstairs, a figure stalked the room between the couch and the coffee table. When she saw the stranger, outfitted with a long yellow raincoat, she stopped. Mark pushed past her and blocked her behind his body. Who the fuck are you? The figure stopped and looked at him. It was an Oneida man, older, with white hair tucked under his yellow hood. He looked as if his skin was too heavy for his skull. This man, he said. He killed my grandson. Who did, Mark demanded. Francine pushed her way in front of him and approached the man. He had lines in his face like deep crevices on the canyon. He was a man attached to the land in which he lived. His texture and color reminded her of an old photograph 
with the contrast brought out like a craggy rock. Where strength once held him up, his shoulders drooped and his eyes sagged. He was truly sad. It was a great loss to him to have his grandson dead. Through the sagging eyes, she saw a glimmer of anger that he tried to shove deep inside. It was an anger she knew stemmed from the white man's treatment of his people that bubbled to the surface from this recent tragedy. He knew that somehow the white man was involved. They always were. I knew your grandson, she said. He came here many times. He looked at her with sincerity, as if to say in his eyes, I trust you. I know your kind of soul. He placed a hand on her shoulder. I know. He spoke kindly of you. He looked past her to Mark. I know your parents, too. They were good friends of mine. It has been a hard thing to keep quiet about their deaths all these years. Mark looked deflated by the comment. Were you friends? We were. That was all he said of the matter. In his next sentence, he was suddenly revived the spirit. I want both of you to come to the reservation. We have something planned that you must not miss. We can take my car, Francine said. Um, Francine? What? She heard the tremble in Mark's voice and didn't like it. What did you do to my car, Mark? He raised his hands and mocked the fence. It's fine, just parked back in town. I left it there. My sob, she said, remembering again the day her brother gave it to her. The name was as much an invocation of how she felt as the car herself. That car means a lot to me. I know, I know. We'll get it, I promise. The old man cleared his throat. We can take my truck. Francine looked away and walked to get her coat. We'll talk later, she said, smiling now. You promise it's okay? I promise. by Lon S. Cohen. To find out more, please visit www.coenside.blogspot.com. This patio book is a production of Zilco Studios. This <laughs> 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 <laughs>